two weeks into my ministry here at Mission Road Bible Church that I got my first request to preach this book. And I looked at that person for about three seconds. I thought about it. Quick prayer. I said, nope. (laughs) Sorry. Ask me again in a week. And just about every week since that day, (laughs) I've gotten this request from various individuals. Why won't you preach the book of Revelation? To which I ask, why do you want me to preach the book of Revelation? And I know you because I was once in high school, and I know that the answer to that is because it's awesome. (laughs) Like, it's just a sweet book. But I'll be honest, this book has... uh, This book has scared me for a long time, and it's still with some fear and trepidation that I've been studying this book and and seeking to understand for several months now what this book says. Uh, And what, what I've learned is that this book, if I can summarize it as succinctly as possible, this book is is a massive spoiler for what is coming at the end of time. Okay? You guys know what a spoiler alert is, right? Like when there's when there's a new movie that comes out, there's there's Details that may or may not have been revealed about that movie, and those details are called spoiler alerts. Like one of the probably one of the biggest movies of my lifetime, of your lifetime, most anticipated movies was uh, the episode seven of the Star Wars series, right? The Force Awakens. And I remember just the anticipation building. You guys remember when that movie was was coming, and like everybody was talking about it, and everybody wanted to know what was going on, and the actors were being pestered, like what happens in this in this next episode? It had been it had been over a decade since the last one had come out, and everyone's dying to know what's going to happen. What's the plot line? What are the twists? Is Luke Skywalker dead? Like, what's going on? Everyone wanted to know the details of what was happening in that story. So the anticipation was building. What happens with actors is they know the plot, right? Years before the movie is even released, they've, they've seen the script, they know what's happening. But part of an actor's contract, actually, is that they're not allowed, they're contractually obligated to not tell people what happens in the story. If they tell people what happens in their story, they lose money in their contract. In fact, Mark Hamill was asked why he wouldn't reveal details. Mark Hamill is the actor for Luke Skywalker. He was asked why he wouldn't reveal the details for the plot of of episode seven, The Force Awakens. And his response was, if I had told you those details, I would have lost a massive amount of money. Because the reality is, we don't want to know what's happening. We don't want to really know how the story ends. I mean, if we had found out that in the opening scene, Luke Skywalker dies. If you haven't seen it, that's not what happens. But if we found out some significant plot and you're like, oh, that's stupid. I don't even want to go and see it. Like, that, that would ruin the success of the movie. Well, the anticipation built, built for, for months and months and years. And that movie, when it hit box offices, just shattered records because the anticipation was so high. There are, there are many things in life that we, we want to be surprised by. Okay? When, when I'm, what, there's nothing worse than watching like a mystery or a thriller and the person you're sitting next to is like telling you the plot before it happens, right? That's the worst. You don't want to watch a movie with that person. 
When they're telling you, no, I know he seems good, he's the bad guy. You don't find out to the last scene. We don't want to know that when you're watching a thriller or a mystery. The, the whole reason for watching it is you don't know what's going to happen. And that makes it exciting. You, know, you don't want to ever start a joke with the punchline. It'd lead to a really boring joke if the rest after you told the punchline was just the backup for that, right? Wouldn't be funny. You want to be surprised by the punchline of a joke. You want to be surprised by the plot of a movie. But surprise is not always a good thing. There are times in life when the last thing we want is to be surprised with information. Uh, it is right now tax season. Now, some of you guys don't know this and have not experienced this yet, but for those of you who have jobs and maybe those of you who are making more money than, than like minimum wage, sometimes surprises happen during tax season. Like you're just going along, you're making money, you got your job, you're paying your bills, and then you get this notification from the IRS that bam, you owe like two grand. And you're like, what? I had no idea I was gonna owe this amount of money. Like, like this, this has happened to me fairly recently. Well, like I'm blindsided by money that I owe to our government. And I'm like, I wish somebody had told me. The last thing I want is in February to realize I have $2,000 that I owe to the IRS that I didn't see coming. You don't wanna be surprised by your taxes. Unless, of course, you're getting money back, then it's kinda nice. <laughs> you don't wanna be surprised by the person that you're gonna marry. Uh, a, a common thing in the world, not really in America, but a common thing in the rest of the world, is something called arranged marriages. I was reading a story earlier this week about an individual that didn't even meet his bride until their wedding day. Their parents had arranged their marriage, and it's his wedding day. They show up, and it's, hi, guess we're going to spend the rest of our lives together. Well, the story I was reading was this guy got a first glimpse of his wife, and he didn't like her. He wasn't attracted to her. He, he didn't think she was funny. He didn't enjoy spending time with her. And he's like, oh, snap. This is a surprise that I wasn't expecting. Like, we're going to, whenever you guys get ready to get married, we're going to spend months of premarital counseling because you don't want to be surprised by who you are marrying. <coughs> you, you don't want to be surprised about the state of your soul. You, you don't want to get to the judgment day and realize I wasn't a Christian. In Matthew chapter 7, we see that scene where there's men on the judgment day that are before Christ and, and Jesus tells them to depart from him. And they say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we obey you by doing this and this and this? And Jesus looks at them and he says, depart from me. I never knew you. And the men are floored. They're shocked. They're surprised because they thought they were in. The last thing you want is to be surprised about the state of your soul. You don't want to be surprised by the end of the world as we know it. You do not want to face the days that the book of Revelation described and not be ready. The content of the book of Revelation is preparing you so that on that day you will not be surprised, but that on that day you will be ready. 
In Matthew chapter 25, there are a list of parables. We don't have time to break those down tonight, but, but in, in those parables, Jesus is describing individuals who aren't expecting their, their master or Jesus to return. And what we learn in those parables is that because they aren't expecting Jesus to return, they aren't ready for Jesus' return. And then after the parable, Jesus connects the dots. And what he tells us in those stories is that those who aren't ready for Jesus' return will be told by Jesus, I don't know you. Believers are marked by readiness for the return of their Lord. If you are surprised by the events that take place in the book of Revelation, then you're in trouble. We must, we must be ready. Therefore, Revelation comes with a massive and awesome spoiler alert. You do not want to be kept in the dark regarding these details. So what we're going to do for the next probably three months in this book is we're going to ruin the end of the story. Because you don't want to be left in the dark on these details. So we are going to give away the surprise so that you will not be surprised and that you can be ready. So here it is. Here is your official spoiler alert for the end of the world. Spoiler alert. God wins. God wins. Lest there be any doubt about the outcome of this world and of your life, God will be victorious. And he will reign forever and ever. And there are none who will stand up against him. God wins. Now, it turns out that if you know your Bible, that's actually not much of a surprise. In this book, we're going to see battles between God and his enemies. But it's not a battle that's undetermined. The victory is secure. The end of all things is already determined, and we know how it ends. God wins. See, I think sometimes we can approach things like the end times, and we can think of it kind of like Star Wars, where it's like it's this battle of good and evil, of of these two forces, and they're just kind of hashing it out, and, and hopefully God wins, but that's not the narrative this scripture gives us. This is not, we're not looking, we're thinking, oh, it's gonna be close. Satan's strong. God's strong. They're going at it. No, the end is determined. God wins. We aren't wringing our hands wondering if we will conquer and if Christ will conquer. God wins because God has already won. God won at the cross. And even that was predetermined long before that. In fact, we're told before the foundation of the earth that the plan was for the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, to be slain. And so we can even say from eternity past, God won. 
From the beginning, this was all part of his sovereign plan, and the end was never in doubt. When Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis chapter 3, God's victory was not jeopardized. The end was always secure, that God would reign victorious. And so we can say God wins. We can look to the future and say God will win. We can look to the past and say God has won. believe that that is a good summary of the essence of this book. So that's what we're going to title this series. God wins as we look into the book of Revelation that shows us the details of the end of the world. I'm, I'm, I'm just like, I'm thrilled. I've been studying this for so long and I'm super excited to be able to help you guys understand and explain this book to you. It's, I'm not kidding when I say it feels like Christmas to me right now. Like I've been holding this in for so long and today and, and for the next three months, I just get to watch you guys open all the gifts, okay? So you'll get to the stage where it's cooler to watch people open gifts than opening gifts. And I'm at that stage, like it's way cooler to give Alyssa gifts than to get them at this point because she's, she can't contain herself when she's opening the gifts. So uh, I need you guys to be here, all right? Because I want to watch you open these gifts, all right? So this is going to be an awesome study. Uh, and I think, I think you're going to find it as I have incredibly, surprisingly, incredibly applicable. Like I have been shocked at the applicable nature of this book. It, it will change your outlook on life. As we dive into this book, we're going to read the first three verses and then we're going to have a little outline. Let's, let's, let's read Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Today's simply going to function as an introduction to the book of Revelation. We'll really start diving into the heart of it next week. Let's read Revelation 1, verses 1 through 3. You can follow along in your Bibles. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. For the time is near. As we break down just a, an introduction to this study, we're going to look at three questions that will prepare us for the book of Revelation. Three questions that will prepare us for the book of Revelation. I'm going to show you all three of these questions, and then we're going to dive into them. Again, we're not really breaking down this text tonight so much as we're seeking to understand what this book is and why we should study it. What is the book of Revelation is the first question that we're going to ask. What is it? Just like, what, how does it function? What is it? Why is it in our Bibles? What's the point? What is the book of Revelation? Secondly, we're going to ask, why, why study it? Why study it? What's the value of this book? Is there value to this book? Is it just a sweet narrative of like some crazy stuff going down? Why study this book of all the books? And third, the third question I want to ask tonight is how then, with those two pieces of information, how, how should we approach it? I mean, this book is crazy and I need help. So how do we approach this book? 
You just pick up the cool things and say, that's awesome. I'm going to think about that for a minute. Or, or, or do, do, we, do, we, do we dive in, go verse by verse? How do we approach this book? Is it literal? Is it symbolic? What should my approach be to studying the book of Revelation? So we're going to break that down first by jumping into that first question. What is the book of Revelation? What, what type of book is it? Okay? Now, we're going to answer this with three descriptive terms, and there's a lot of overlap between them. But, but those words, even that we see in this text that we, just, that we just read, that start to explain to us the nature of this book. What type of book is it? Well, first of all, the first kind of qualification and, and thing that helps us understand what this book is, is that it's apocalyptic literature. It's apocalyptic literature. Now, we're starting off this study with a big word, apocalyptic literature. It's actually a Greek word that we've turned into English. It's, it's, it's apocalypsis, okay? And, and that word is actually the first word in this letter. It's, it's word number one, like it's named after the first word, okay? When you open the Greek Testament, the first word that you would see in the book of Revelation is apocalyptic, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. That word apocalypse specifically refers to, to visions, to revelations from God that come in the form of a vision. So when we say that this is apocalyptic literature, what we understand that to mean is that what John is doing is he's giving a report of an extended vision that he received from God. He's writing it down. He's writing down what he sees in this vision. Now, a vision is something that we need to properly understand because visions aren't happening today. But men were often given visions. It was a visual thing. It was like a dream, but different. They, they were visions given by God. And in those visions, he revealed a specific message to them that he wanted declared. That's what this book is. John is given a vision by God, and John is to write it down and tell the details to seven churches. Now, again, visions aren't happening today. Like, I don't want you to see this and think, oh, snap, John has some crazy stuff happening in his dream. And then you go home tonight, and you have a crazy dream, and you wake up, and you're like, oh, yeah, John's got nothing on me. I'm going to write this down and bless some people with it. That's not, that's not how it works. Okay, John, this is a specific message from God through the form of a vision. He doesn't communicate this way anymore. He's communicating this way through his apostle, John, because he has a unique message for the seven churches that this letter is to be sent to. So this is apocalyptic literature. Secondly, and there's a lot of overlap here, but we see this word later in the text that we just read. It is prophetic literature. It is prophetic literature. In verse number three, we see, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy. That word prophecy and also overlapping with the word apocalyptic re refers to a vision that's pointing to something that has not happened yet. The revelation that they received, even whether it's a, it's a vision or not, the revelation that they've received from God is something about what's going to happen, not something that's already happened. It's prophetic in nature. If I can simplify it, it's telling the future. This book tells the future. It's a vision from God that tells John the stuff that's going to happen later in history. 
We know that these events haven't happened yet. We're told again in verse 3, like, it's a prophecy. We need to heed the things that are in it for the time. Look at the end of verse 3. The time is near. It's not here yet, but it's near. It's close. It could happen at any moment. It is apocalyptic literature. It is prophetic literature. And then third, it is symbolic literature. It is symbolic literature. In this vision that God is giving John, there are all sorts of signs and illustrations and symbols that are exactly what John is seeing when he writes something. It's what he's seen. So like early on, he sees, he sees the Son of Man and in his hand he has seven stars and, and seven lampstands. And, 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 and that's, that's real. That's what John has seen. But those stars and those lampstands, they symbolize something else. They illustrate something else. We're told in, later in chapter 1 that the seven stars refer to the seven angels of the churches. The, the seven golden lampstands are, are the seven churches. So it's symbolic terminology. Now, not everything in Revelation is symbolic. Like if we're in verse 1, it's not like the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hmm, who does Jesus Christ symbolize? No, it's Jesus Christ. The difficulty, though, is deciding what is symbolic and what is not. And that's why we have to be so very careful. I mean, there's all sorts of numbers throughout this book. And seemingly, these numbers are symbolic. But there's also numbers in this book that seems like we should take literally. When he talks about the seven stars and the seven churches, he's actually thinking of seven literal churches. When we get to expressions like a thousand years, is he talking about a literal thousand years or just a really long period of time? I mean, the number seven like just won't stop showing up in this book. It shows up 54 times. We see the number 10 repeatedly, 12s and multiples of 12s, seven stars, seven angels, seven lampstands, seven churches, 10 heads. They represent the 10 kings. One of the primary reasons that this book is so difficult is because it's symbolic literature. And that we need to seek to understand what these symbols represent and how they apply to our life. We're gonna see similes all through this book where John writes and he's like, he's again, he's seeing some crazy stuff and he's trying the best that he can to explain it in human terms. But he's like, he's like a junior high girl, like every other word that comes out is just like, 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 like. Because he's like, I see something and it's like, it's like a lion, but like also like a man. And like it has, it has hair like a woman. And it's just like crazy. He's just like, he can't, he can't use these physical pictures that we're, that we're with. So, so he's describing these locusts and it's got the face of a lion and the hair of a woman and the tail like a scorpion and it's saying stuff and it's, it's like kind of a demon. Like it's, it's just crazy. He's just, just grasping for words to describe what he's seen because what he's seen is heavenly. And the earthly words that we have struggle to define everything that we see in this book. So that's a brief summary of what type of book this is. It's apocalyptic, it's prophetic, it's symbolic. Let me, let me kind of give you a summary of this. The book of Revelation is primarily the recording of a vision that portrays the return of Christ and the events that surround it. The book of Revelation is primarily 
the recording of a vision or visions that portray the return of Christ and the events that surround it. Okay, that's in that you see some of it's, it's apocalyptic, those visions, it's prophetic, it's future, return of Christ, it's symbolic, he's recording what he sees. This is what the book of Revelation is. So that leads us then to the question, why should we study it? Why should we study it? Well, I had, I had 22 reasons. Uh, but I whittled it down, I think, to 11. We're going to move quickly, okay? Uh, we're not going to turn to all these passages, but these are so, oh my word, I want to spend hours on this. These are so essential to what we're going to do in this book. Why study the book of Revelation? Reason number one, and this one's really serious, because you guys have been begging me. You've been begging me for years, and I've resisted it for years, but you finally won me over. So that's the first reason, but not the most important. Second, and like I really mean this, it's, it's just awesome. This book is like, I just, I wish I had better words to describe it. This book is just so cool. But I want to be careful when I say that because like it is awesome. It's a really cool book. There's some crazy stuff in here. We're going to see battles and plagues and dragons and kingdoms and beasts and judgments and salvation and heaven and hell and fire and blood and crazy animals and demons and angels. It's, it's awesome. It's so cool. But also like it's, it's no more cool than any other book. Like, it's awesome because it's the Word of God, and the content is fun to read, but all of God's Word is awesome. See, here's the thing. I, I, was, I was once on a Sunday night sitting next to a student, and Pastor Rick was preaching a sermon on the church. He was preaching on ecclesiology. And I'm looking over at my student because he's, he's just actively, like, turning back and forth. I'm like, he's really engaged right now. And the closer I look, I'm looking over him, and he's in the book of Revelation, which there's some church stuff in there, but mostly not. What's he doing? And the more I watch him, the more I realize that this student, this student's not in here right now, so stop looking around. Uh, this student is uh, reading the book of Revelation because it's way more interesting than whatever Pastor Rick is reading. <laughs> Which is really immature. But like I say that from his point of view. I asked him, I was like, hey, I noticed you were in Revelation. Like, were you making connections I wasn't making? And he was like, no, I was just bored. And Revelation's awesome. And, and, and there's a sense like that, that he's right. Like it's just really fun to read. I've, I've read uh, five times now. I've read through this book from start to finish in one sitting. And it's a page turner. Like it's an exciting book to read. But it's no more profitable than, than any other words in the word of God. It's all profitable for us. And so I want to be careful while we acknowledge that this book is awesome and that you guys have been wanting me to teach it for a long time. I want to be careful in you and in me that we don't separate this as like the really fun part of scripture and the rest is just kind of boring. If that's our approach, if you misunderstand and devalue the rest of scripture, Revelation just doesn't even matter. If the cross doesn't matter to you, Revelation is the worst news you could hear. Let's keep going. We have so much to cover. Uh, number three, 
Third reason that we should study the book of Revelation, it's applicable to everyone. It's applicable to everyone. And what I mean by that is the book of Revelation matters for every single human. This book is being written, this letter is being written so that it can be passed around to seven churches. And we're given the description. We're going to teach on it. Then chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, we're told about those seven churches. What we find in those seven churches, though, is they have all sorts of different problems. Let me, let me read them to you quickly. Church of Ephesus is doctrinally sound, but they've lost their love for Christ. The church of Smyrna, there are several there who are about to be thrown into prison and suffer. The church of Pergamum, uh, there are some there who are believing false doctrine. The church in Thyatira, they're growing, but they're also following a false prophet who's calling them to sin. Uh, The church in Sardis, they look good, but they're actually spiritually dead. They're not even saved. There is the church in Philadelphia. They're a healthy church, but they're surrounded by an ungodly religious environment. The church in Laodicea, they're lukewarm. They're neither hot or cold, and God tells them, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth if you don't repent. Every one of those seven churches has a very different problem. Some of them are healthy Christians. Some of them are struggling Christians. Some of them have their doctrine right, but, but, but they're not living right. Some of them are living right, but their doctrine's wrong. Some of them aren't even saved. But every single one of them, Paul says, you need the message that's in this book. The book of Revelation is applicable to every single person. Believers, healthy believers, unfaithful believers, unbelievers. The end of all things is applicable to everyone in every circumstance. It drives unbelievers to the gospel. It shows those who are enjoying their sin that it will lead to suffering. It encourages those in trials that, that, that eventually one day everything will ultimately be perfect. It challenges Christians who aren't growing to return to Christ. It presses healthy believers to continue on to remain faithful. It calls students in school who are being ridiculed for their faith that one day God will reward you. It calms those who are in pain and incredible sorrow that one day he's going to wipe every tear from your eye. It reveals to those who are wandering away from Christ that they must return, they must repent, or they'll suffer. It reveals that those who are wondering if everything's going to work out, that it is that Christ will reign. It reminds us all that as we are struggling with sin, that the day is coming when sin will be no more and Satan will be destroyed. The message of this book is profitable for every single person. Number four, number four, it compels us to live holy lives. The book of Revelation compels us to live holy lives. Uh, write down this passage. would love for you to turn there later. We don't have time now. Second Peter chapter three, verse 10 and 11 says, since everything in this world is gonna be destroyed, since it's all gonna be burned up, and in Revelation, stuff's getting burned up. Stuff is getting destroyed. Peter says, since that's all going to happen, how should we conduct ourselves? How should we live in a holy way? Because all of this is going to be destroyed. And so in seeing that and in studying that, what we recognize is that because everything will be destroyed and everything will be burned up, we must live holy lives now. Number five, 
It drives us to the church. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 talks about the assembling of one another together as you anticipate the coming day of the Lord. As we anticipate the coming day of the Lord, that is his return, we're driven to the church. It gives us hope. It gives us hope. Romans chapter 8, verse 18 talks about that, that though the, the, the trials are difficult now and painful, that we have the hope of what is one day coming and that it will exceed the difficulty of what we're experiencing now. The, the, the pain of this will pale in comparison to how glorious heaven will be. Verse 7, it shows us the significance of disobedience. It shows us how dangerous disobedience is. I don't have a verse by that because it's like chapter 6 all the way through chapter 18 and beyond. Number 8. It draws us to worship God. It draws us to worship God. Revelation 19 verse 10 John is overwhelmed by the things that he's seen. And he's so overwhelmed, he just has to fall down and worship somebody. And there's an angel before him, and he's just, I gotta worship right now. He falls down to his face, and he starts worshiping, and the angel says, stop it. Don't worship me, I'm just a messenger. And he calls John in the midst of this vision, worship God, because of the glorious things that you've seen. Worship God. Students, if you're, if you're faithfully Believing this book, it will draw you to worship your creator. Number nine, it reveals Christ. It reveals Christ. Revelation chapter one, verse one. You know what this book is? The revelation of Jesus Christ. This book reveals who our Lord and our Savior is. A tenth reason. It's part of your Bible. <laughs> uh, 1 Timothy 3.15 talks about how every word, every inspired word is profitable. Turns out revelation is some of those words. Every word is profitable. Every word is helpful. We shouldn't avoid the book of Revelation. We shouldn't avoid it because it's profitable. It's part of God's word. It's part of his revelation to us. So why should we study it? Because it's part of your Bible. Study your Bibles in their entirety. Number 11, number 11, it extends, this is, this is crazy, I love this. It extends a blessing to those who read, hear, and obey. You're like, what are you talking about? I'm talking about verse number three. Check this out. This is you, this is me, if we obey these things. Ready? Verse three, blessed Blessed, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. What he says right there is if you are reading this or hearing this and obeying this, there is there's a blessing to you. What that blessing is, I, I'm, I tend to think that the blessing that comes to those who read and hear and obey is like all of these things that we've just talked through. That if you read and hear and obey that, that is the blessing. It's possible some believe that like there's like some unique blessing given in heaven to those who, who, who read and, and, and obey this book. I think the blessing is all right there. There is a blessing extended to those who read and hear and obey this book. So quickly, why? Uh, it, brief kind of overview of everything we just said. 
The book of Revelation is written to produce a response in those who heard it. Lest you be tempted to pull out your charts of the book of Revelation, understand that when this message was given, it wasn't so that we could create cool-looking charts about the end times. The book of Revelation is written to produce a response in those who heard it. That they would worship God. That they would repent of sin and hope for the return of Christ. That brings us to this third question. How should we approach it? Two characteristics that I want to define our approach to this book. One, with humility, and two, with confidence. One, with humility, and two, with confidence. And we'll close with these comments. The book of Revelation is really difficult. It's hard. I don't want to stand up here and act like this is easy. I sat down in 30 minutes and I had it all figured out. This book takes work. Leon Morris, a commentator, uh, wrote, Revelation is by common consent one of the most difficult books in all of the Bible. It's hard to understand. And so what I want us to do is sit beneath Scripture humble ourselves before these words and and ask the questions. How can I grow and how can I be changed and how can I understand rightly the word of truth? I'm not going to preach this using using charts that we're going to interpret this book through. I'm not going to reference the Left Behind series. If you guys have read that, like those are, those are fun books. They're not inspired. They're not biblical. And they're certainly not how we should interpret this book. I want us to sit beneath scripture with humility and to learn and ask, what does this mean? What did it mean to the original hearers? What does it mean for us now? But just because we are looking at a book that's difficult to understand and difficult to wrap our minds around and and maybe even frustrating at times doesn't mean that we come to this book and just hopelessly say, whatever. I mean, I just have no idea what he's talking about. I want us to approach this book with confidence. God's word is clear. And he wants his word to be understood. He's written it so that we would understand it. There there is a thing that's becoming very popular and I want to warn you against. And it's called eschatological apathy. Those are two big words. Here's what it means. End times, who knows who cares. It's confusing. I can't figure it out. So I'm just going to sit back and relax and just let it all happen. If we do that, we are ignoring part of the word of God. As faithful stewards, we must try to understand this book and pray that God will help us understand it. So for the next three months, that's what we're going to do. Sit humbly beneath this book. Read it, hear it, obey it, and be changed by what we see. I hope that you're committed to that goal. I, I believe if you are, if you're a child of God, that as we learn these things, you will find them encouraging and challenging and confronting that they will give you hope and that you will sit longing for the day when your Lord and your Savior will return.